right, welcome back to the popular show on the Sublation Media uh, YouTube channel. That's right, we've got our own telly show. I'm James A. Smith. You'll be seeing something of David Slavic in a little moment. But right now we've got Michael Tracy, the great Michael Tracy, independent journalist uh, and fearless truth teller. Welcome back to the popular show, Michael. Well, as I mentioned before we got on air, I think if I were to go around pompously describing myself as a fearless truth teller, <laughs> it might not go over so well. Well, um, so I'll leave that to others yeah. to you. You tell you tell say. truth, man. It's just a descriptor. Uh, so you know, we've got a lot to 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 cover. Uh, you're in the UK right now, though. Yes, I'm. I'm in London still. Yeah, that's great. I, I'm up in Manchester. Otherwise, I would uh, insist on buying you a a frothy pint in one of those <laughs> fine uh, wood walled pubs. I might just take some tea, but. I, just, I appreciate the sentiment. Just a cup of tea for you. Um, well, I, I want to get your take on uh, the peculiarities of the English and how the Ukraine war has been uh, received and responded to in the UK a little later in the programme. Um, but f first of all, let's cover this whole sort of business of Twitter and uh, Elon Musk's takeover uh, of it, because th I think this has been quite quite a revealing story this week. Uh, I mean, f first of all, Twitter, of course, is is tiny compared to uh, some of the other kind of big social media uh, platforms. Only uh, 217 million users, according to the data I'm looking at, compared to the two billion using face uh, Facebook. But it, it has this kind of outsized importance because, of course, all of our political class, all of our media class, seem to spend all their time on it. What was your sort of response to um, the week's adventures on that little island called Twitter? Yeah, well, one thing that I don't think lots of journalists and media personalities and others who, as you correctly suggest, spend an inordinate amount of time every day on Twitter, one thing I don't, I don't think they'll really have enough self-awareness to admit, but it's plainly the case, is that they have tons of social capital bound up in Twitter. Right? I mean, they've spent years now, I mean, we've gotten past sort of like the maturation stage of Twitter in a way where it's not so firmly integrated into how media and quote content gets produced, particularly in these elite spheres, that it's almost kind of inseparable from how they conceive of their jobs. And I don't necessarily um, exclude myself from this. I mean, I came of age journalistically or in, in my media capacity, whatever you want to call it, uh, largely by way of, of Twitter, um, not solely or exclusively through Twitter, but it's been, you know, one of my main uh, avenues of generating a following and, um, you know, reaching an audience. Yeah. So, you know, I too have some capital vested in Twitter, right? So I, again, I'm not excluding myself from this at all, but I think a lot of them don't like to admit that because it can seem maybe a bit frivolous or that, you know, they don't want to overtly kind of uh, acknowledge how they, how they view their position on this platform because it might be a bit embarrassing or seem like uh, superficial or something. Uh, so so what yeah. they'll often do is posture as saying, oh, you know, I hate this hell site. Um, I can't believe that I'm somehow always sucked back into Twitter, even though I despise it. And even though I spend 
24 hours a day, sending and receiving uh, professional validation through it and cultural signifiers uh, through it. Um, so clearly they derive some value from it, even if they have to sort of feign their disillusionment, disillusionment with it as a platform. So that's why yeah. you saw such a massive reaction when Elon Musk took it over, or at least, you know, uh, his purchase offer was accepted because that means they're not going to have the same influence any longer in kind of using their leverage to pressure Twitter into acceding to their demands to change the management structure or the content moderation structure in accordance with their values. Because that's what they had done. They have done assidu assiduously over the past, especially maybe five or six years, such that the guiding ethos of Twitter ceased being what Jack Dorsey actually stated it was in 2015, which was that Twitter ought to be the home for free expression on the internet. And it changed into something different, whereas like Twitter's the home for capitulating at the first sign of journalists saying that there's a new form of speech which must be curtailed or else it's going to cause harm or violence. Um, and you see the, you know, the bans and the purging and the censorship pretty much escalating exponentially since 2016 when, you know, everybody's outlook had to change permanently, you know, based on the ascension of Trump. Um, yeah. So, so that, I think that's what they're uh, reacting to. And I don't know if Elon Musk is going to follow through on his stated commitments to restore free speech as the operative principle at Twitter, but at least he says that's what his goal is. I mean, and he could be held to it, I guess, if he doesn't, um, if he doesn't make good on the, on the pledge, but uh, I, I, otherwise I'm not sure what they're so alarmed by because it seems like nothing about their user experience is going to change, at least according to what we can glean from what Musk has said, except that they're not going to have the same kind of like back channel um, leverage ability over the people who run Twitter to constantly erode the uh, commitment that the platform has toward free expression or free speech. What would be some examples of that sort of professional class erosion of the platform uh, and that kind of way in which this quite small cohort has been able to replicate its values across it? Well, I mean, the, the most dramatic example was the banning of Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, that was unbelievable, really. I mean, that was almost inconceivable mm -hmm. when it happened. I mean, not inconceivable, yeah. but it was still sort of a shock because this is a, a unprecedented act of corporate usurpation over the where the democratically elected president, he was still the sitting president at the time he was banned, was no longer permitted to use what had become his primary communications mechanism to... Uh, you know, communicate with the public. Um, and who made that decision exactly? I mean, we still don't know. Um, yeah. I, mean, I mean, who individually within Twitter decided to do that? I mean, Jack Dorsey apparently was off on some meditation retreat. And so he wasn't consulted <laughs> when that decision came down. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Actually. I think that was the case. He was in Thailand or something. Um, right. uh, and, but that was just the culmination of these incremental escalations in censorship that had been brewing since around 2016. I mean, Milo Yiannopoulos, who I'm not a fan of, obviously, but when he was banned in, two, in summer of 2016, he had a large following. He was one of the most probably most prominent right-wing people on the on the platform. And because uh, he got into some, some kind of spat with a Saturday Night Live comedian and actor, you know, by saying something rude about her uh, performance in the ghost, like the female Ghostbusters movie. Mm -hmm. You know, journalists were saying, you know, this is dangerous. This is harmful. 
and this celebrity needs to be protected from this, you know, right-wing provocateur, and then they banned him from Twitter. And you saw countless examples like that mounting and mounting and mounting. Um, and even just recently, you know, the Babylon Bee was banned. You know, it's this kind of, I think, not that funny right-wing slash conservative satirical site. It got banned for something related to, I don't know, trans issues. Um, and, you know, there are just many, many different examples of this. And there have also been left-wing people who have been banned for various reasons. Now, I don't think, you know, sometimes one of the arguments that you'll hear from left-wing people, if they want to at least maintain some pretense of fidelity to free speech, is to say, look, now they might be going after the right primarily, but this is going to boomerang back on the left. And that's why we have to ban, that's why we have to oppose encroachments on free speech. I mean, if that's sort of like incidentally works as an argument to get more leftists to return to what had been a baseline position that they used to hold, which is to support free speech, then okay. But I'm not sure it really is going to boomerang back on the left that much. I mean, I think the left is enough a position of dominance. They don't have to worry about it as much. I just think you have to just support free speech in principle, yeah, um, regardless yeah. of who it affects, um, not only because it could like, you know, also hurt your side down the line. I mean, it could, but I don't think that's particularly feasible at the moment. The focus on Elon Musk himself it, it has been quite a sort of interesting dimension of this because it, it feels like um, both sides uh, in this are really projecting a hell of a lot of political meaning onto what is um, quite a, I guess, idiosyncratic figure, but but also one that is I can't really see doing either what this kind of liberal professional class um, uh, side fear he's going to do, nor can I see him being the the person who's going to kind of remake the platform um, in the way that the whatever right wing um, right wing supporters want him to do. So, I, I mean, yeah. what, what about him himself? Like, wh how do you how do you see his kind of personal place in this? Yeah. Um, just another actually good example of the censorship that I've for forgot to mention in the previous comment. Um, you know, Max Blumenthal, I, I believe, post wrote an article at the Gray Zone project, which he he runs. Uh, it's just called the Gray Zone, um, and uh, it was based on materials that had been leaked to him or that he obtained. And when the piece was circulated on Twitter it got appended with this kind of warning or disclaimer saying that, you know, this article contains hack materials, beware, something to that effect. Right. Yeah. And, so, and, and of course yeah. that would never be applied. I mean, the New York times published Donald Trump's tax returns, which they could only have obtained through some illegal means. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there would never in a million so no, years. No question of whether it's true or not. The, no, this, no, kind of, this, this idea that there's something unseemly about how it's been resourced. I mean, it's exactly the same thing with, uh, well, with obviously with the kind of COVID warnings that uh, so much like publication online now has, uh, but also well, a lot the, of that the Russian, that Russian affiliated uh, media. Yeah, yeah, a lot of that stemmed, by the way, from post 2016, there was this overwhelming uh, push to scapegoat the tech companies for enabling Trump's victory by excessively permitting the platforms to uh, be populated by Russian disinformation or Russian mm -hmm. leak campaigns, you know, so, for example, through WikiLeaks. So 
uh, because they allowed WikiLeaks publications to proliferate on Twitter, the idea was that, you know, Congress had to be lobbied and they were lobbied. I mean, there were hearings held constantly throughout 2017 and 18 where, you know, Jack Dorsey, Zuckerberg, the Google executives, et cetera, were all hauled before these committees and berated by Democrats and even to some degree Republicans for not sufficiently uh, counteracting this supposed Russian influence operation that had been allowed to you know, take over their platforms and resulted in this you know, heinous electoral outcome in the form of the you know, unexpected victory of Donald Trump in 2016. So to accommodate that, basically I, 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 under government pressure, they instituted a lot of these new uh, policies that, you know, more and more stringently, you know, would be constantly labeling things, misinformation or labeling things, hack materials. You know, through COVID, this escalated constantly, where even they would be depending, you know, disclaimers to what Trump was saying or to anyone saying if they could call it disinformation, even though a lot of what had been called disinformation uh, earlier on and was like proven probably tr roughly true in terms of yeah. the efficacy of cloth masks or whatever. Um, and, you know, various other aspects of the whole COVID saga. So, yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. There's no there's no uh, consistent principle underlying it, except just as a reaction to what these this professional class of, you know, liberals say ought to be done in the name of safety, which is just really just preserving their own power. In terms of what Musk wants to do, you know, I don't have any insight in his brain any more than anybody else. Uh, I think it's might it's probably just sound at this point to just go based on what he's saying, which is that he wants to preserve free speech. He seems like a guy who maybe has like a somewhat not particularly well-formed conception of what free speech is and its importance. Uh, but nonetheless, he does kind of support it in principle and he doesn't like when, you know, people he finds funny or maybe somewhat insightful on Twitter get banned and he wants them to come back and not be banned. Um, that seems probably accurate to me. And he's also ha happens to be the richest person on earth. So he can do this. Um, yeah. There's and a weird. At the same time, though, when I go when mm. I, going back to what I started off with about this whole point of Twitter containing tons of social capital that journalists are often sort of uh, uh, reluctant to admit. Um, maybe Musk correctly perceives that Twitter has this social capital and it's distinct among other social media platforms, and thinks that there are ways to probably monetize that into a more sustainable business. That has yet been done with the, with Twitter's management. I mean, by all accounts, there's a lot of bloat within Twitter. I mean, they have like thousands and thousands of employees. I can't tell you what like two thirds of them do. I have no idea what two thirds of them would do yeah. um, on a daily basis. You know, maybe he thinks that there's a, a potential for expansion, and you know, I don't know. I mean, I think um, clearly he doesn't need to make any more money, but it's it's plausible to me that he does genuinely perceive Twitter to have a untapped potential as a profit making venture. Maybe he's right. I mean, he was right for his, his prior ventures. So um, he's maybe he sees something that others may not. A weird part of um, all this uh, sort of hysterical response to Elon Musk um, trying to take over Twitter has been the fact that actually um Quite a lot of him or his political signifiers or uh, things he's involved in are absolutely to the taste of elite liberals. I, I mean, the, uh, electric cars, for God's sake. The yeah. fact that he frames all of his kind of ambitions in terms of solving climate change. Uh, Renewable the, the, energy. 
all the space stuff. I mean, th this is a, this is almost like if the Democrats weren't so beleaguered currently, and weren't so uh, stuck with this kind of aging, decaying uh, leadership, if they hadn't tied so much uh, uh, up in killing Bernie, uh, then this is kind of like what a Democrat should look like. This, <laughs> if, if you see what I mean, it, it's simply the fact that unlike other billionaires, Elon Musk has a kind of slightly messy way of uh, sharing his thoughts with the world, sharing these kind of edgy tastes, this sort of narcissism where he wants to be liked by whatever the the hipster kind of group seems to be. And that's been these sort of outlight uh, kind of figures uh, of late. The fact that he's probably unique among billionaires in having tried to get Azealia Banks into a threesome. All of this kind of, there's this sort of eccentric side of him. I wasn't aware sort of There's <laughs> slightly kind of edgy kind of dimension that everybody's kind of freaking out about, even though economically and in uh, quite a lot of his wider project, like the, the, these elite liberals should think of him as one of them. That's the the puzzle to me, and, and that goes for conservatives as well. I mean, the the fact that you know Elon Musk said, said the most kind of basic bitch thing, like, "Oh, as long as the far right and the far left are upset with me, I'll know I'm doing yeah. a good job." That's the basic like Guardian yeah. New York Times <laughs> and, position, and they, and they have like an uproar of like uh, uh, elation that somebody says this really anodyne yeah. thing. It's he's a funny. he's a normie lib, you know, with yeah. a, a bit of kind of eccentricity to well, it. Well, yes, actually, yesterday he tweeted that he strongly supported Obama in 2008, yeah. which, you know, was a very normy thing to do at the time. Yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me that now, you know, 14 years later, he's perceived to be this heinous, you know, right wing villain. Um, because, you know, although I do think the cartoon that he posted where, I don't know if you saw it, but there was a cartoon which basically purports to track the evolution of liberals versus conservatives since 2008. And in 2008, he was like center left. And then oh, if right, you look yeah, at how like yeah. the diagram expands now, like the, the liberals have gone so far to the left and now he's like somewhat center right or something. And the right hasn't changed. I mean, I'm, I'm not doing a great job explaining it, but if you just pulled it up, um, although I do think it's probably over simplistic, there is something to it in the sense that the people who had, if you just plucked anyone from 2008, that had roughly the positions of a normie Obama supporter and placed them into April of 2022, there's a decent chance that they would now be presumptively assumed to be a hardcore right winger. And, yeah. you know, 14 years, you know, it's not a huge amount of time. Um, and, you know, granted stuff can change, but, uh, you know, it does, I think, tell you something about how uh, quickly these uh, ideological affinities get upended and um, how like the sorting mechanism just operates seemingly uh, arbitrarily at a, at a warp speed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he, his whole thing is being about, I, I almost think that when I first became aware of him, it, you know, maybe in the early, late 2000s or something, I kind of assumed he was just a, standard fare kind of liberal capitalist type because mm -hmm. he was always talking about renewable and not that I was hugely into him because he was just then a business guy that I didn't really have much interest in keeping tabs on. But I just remember him talking about renewable energy and, you know, uh, you know, the stuff that would have been in any liberal, you know, I mean, democratic yeah. uh, party uh, politicians kind of platform to, to campaign on. And now, you know, just because 
he's not totally down with every latest uh, kind of cultural dogma. He's, I guess, horrible. Um, and again, they, they don't care about it because it's he's a billionaire per se, right? I mean, that, that doesn't bother them at all. I mean, Mike Bloomberg's a billionaire, Jeff Bezos is a billionaire, and they're not. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the Saudi stakeholders who tried yeah, I mean, to uh, squeeze him out. Uh, Mike Bloomberg <laughs> still funds like half of the Democratic Party's like NGO apparatus. Yeah. So they don't care about that. They only care about, I guess, because maybe he. I, I really think it's bizarrely enough, and maybe this is a reductive way to put it, but I think it's because of Twitter. I think it's because he does crazy things on Twitter now and then. It gives an indication that maybe he's sort of in tune with the cultural sensibilities of the center right or the anti-woke crowd. And that alone is enough to set them off. So it, it almost negates whether he's doing something fundamental to transform the way energy is used in the world. Right? I mean, that is all uh, totally supplanted by whether you know he's makes a quip about pronouns. Yeah, I, I mean, the billionaire like it it's 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 quite odd um in the time we're at that um the it almost feels anachronistic the way in which these individual eccentric charismatic billionaires have such a kind of outsized influence uh on our whole kind of politics and culture i mean until pretty recently the the standard kind of economic left line was oh for, you know it's a distraction to be focused on these individual billionaires it's the whole system the whole structure that needs addressing but actually neoliberalism has been so effective in uh the upward movement of wealth that now actually the the arbitrary kind of personal decisions of an elon musk or a bill gates absolutely have this kind of huge ramification and this huge kind of um yeah. influence and I think when it comes to Twitter, this small platform where so many of the kind of cultural mores are decided and set, actually those kind of personality things do become quite important. And I mean, on the one hand, there's there's probably a sort of narcissism of small differences here that these whatever lower editors and content creators and, and, and columnists and so on um, probably like see that actually Musk is a little bit closer closer to them than, than than they'd quite like or he's the kind of more successful version of them whatever it is that, that there is something like that, that is actually very hard to explain to someone who's not on twitter like why this uh response to elon musk has really come about it's so like within its own kind of insane like rules and boundaries of who who the goodies and who the baddies are on this one platform yeah, I mean, it really is the case that the personal predilections of Elon Musk and Bill Gates and uh, Jeff Bezos and, you know, maybe one or two others uh, have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, have Mike Bloomberg have hugely outsized impacts yep. on our day-to-day -day lives. And maybe there is something new about it, especially in the case of Musk, insofar as it's tra transmuted through the filter of social media. Um, but I don't know, maybe I need to brush up on my history of like the Gilded Era or something. Uh, mm. But wasn't there a lot of yeah. individualized uh, animus and, and activism against, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan and all these people who are like the, you know, the arch uh, capitalists of their time? So maybe yeah, it's we're, not we're absolutely exactly going back. We're yeah. back in that age, really. Yeah. I mean, on last week's show, I described what we're living through as a restoration. It's like being in the late 17th century where the king has returned, the populist uprisings have been closed down, and now we're all just kind of pontificating and, and arguing over these kind of elite concerns. And yeah, and because this will there's be another no way in which we've gone back. 
because there's no hope for like Washington, like the governmental mechanisms of Washington, D.C. to actually come to sort of some any sort of resolution in terms of how social media could be managed, whether as a public utility or something in between, whether it's a regulatory structure or just, you know, totally privatize it. You know, there's not going to be any resolution to that question by way of Congress in concert with the president. Right. Um, so all we're really left to do at this point is, you know, tentatively side with one of the uh, competing oligarchs um, yep. in hopes that, you know, he'll be maybe be more benevolent than the alternative. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's hardly a promising uh, predicament to find oneself in, but you know, if, like, so if, if you ask me, do I think that Elon Musk purchasing Twitter is going to make Twitter more or less hospitable to free speech going forward, I would say probably more. And therefore, I guess I favor it compared to the alternative. That's not so I, I endorse the whole set of conditions which gave rise to him being able to make the purchase in the first place and wield this degree of unilateral influence. Um, yeah, but. I mean, it's it's almost like the Trump situation, or at least how Trump described himself in 2016, that you, you almost kind of need a figure who is so personally rich that um, it, they're almost like uncommodified in some way, that, that, that they're less answerable to shareholders, less answerable to Wall Street. It didn't particularly work out that way uh, with Trump, but at least there's the possibility, actually, of somebody who... Uh, isn't answerable to shareholders in quite the same way as the current leadership. Well, you know, something might happen. It's almost worth rolling the dice for this thing. Well, because Trump was never quite rich enough for that to apply to him. No, he's Ellie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, he's still, I still get about 50 emails a day. I don't even know how I got on these lists. But, you know, from his various email front groups, you know, using more and more crazy tactics to get me to open their email mm -hmm. and give $50. Yeah. Um, to go into his, you know, <laughs> uh, campaign fund and waiting. And, you know, if he had Mike, Blo even just Mike Bloomberg levels of money, you wouldn't have to do that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, maybe the, the rationale that Trump offered there, I think probably has some logic to it, but it just didn't really apply to him. I mean, obviously he's a very rich person, uh, but not so much that he could just go it alone the entire way as he kind of suggested that he would do. And he actually didn't, you know, um, actually didn't do that throughout the 2016 campaign either uh throughout the primaries he said you know some people will get you know he had a donate button on his uh website and uh he was saying you know some people like to give a small amount of money and that's fine and you know he would just kind of half encourage it mm. and then you know once he won the nomination he just actually we need some cash yeah now. he just dropped any mm. pretense of that and they yeah, started yeah. you know they did the full rnc coordinated fundraising blitz well, we've got more to discuss with Michael Tracy, so stay with us. Uh, but let's go to another segment connected to this one uh, with Janine Yunus. Uh, I'm going to show you David Slavik, my usual co-host, interviewing her. Last May, the Biden administration uh, renewed its campaign of pressure on social media platforms to combat so-called disinformation regarding COVID-19. The result has been a blurring of relationships between social media platforms and government, where the platforms are increasingly being asked to routinely supply information on their users and to remove user accounts on behalf of the state. This is a big context for this whole Elon Musk uh, situation. Janine Yunus uh, is an attorney with the new Civil Liberties Alliance and has taken on the suit against the surgeon 
Surgeon General on behalf of several banned Twitter users in a case with potentially serious consequences for the new authoritarianism we're seeing in public health since COVID. We recorded this last week. The case was heard yesterday and they're awaiting a decision for the full discussion. This is just an extract. Uh, the whole conversation is great. Um, get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and we'll be right back with Michael Tracy after this segment. I, yeah, one, one of the things I found really interesting about this case in general is that uh, this case plus a number of other sort of um, legal moves that I'm seeing sort of in a, in a conservative sphere, and I wouldn't call this strictly conservative, and I think just to be fair, um, this is, it's about civil liberties, it's about, you know, the, you know, sort of circumventing the ability of the state to sort of control our every move, all those types of things. Um, and, you know, as someone who's, I views themselves as broadly on the left, um, I find myself in conflict with a lot of people that I agree with generally on this issue. And that's what I, that's one of the reasons that we decided to have you on because we, we, we think that, that this is a really interesting sort of way of going about approaching these issues uh, outside of the political sphere and, and kind of forcing science into the legal sphere. And I think that's pretty interesting. One of the things that I, this case in particular, I found quite interesting and um, the, it, Apparently, from from what I've read uh, about the about the case, is that there was a request for information uh, with the Health and Human Services, and it was used uh, in relation to alleged COVID misinformation. Um, is that a, a is this use of uh, request for information precedented? And this was directed at social media companies. Am I wrong? That's right. Um, so the request for information was issued on about March third, and the Surgeon General demanded or ask, depending on who you ask, <laughs> uh, tech companies to hand over sources of misinformation, by which they mean uh, presumably uh, the identity of individuals. We don't know exactly what it means. So um, we don't know whether it could entail private messages that people exchange, um, presumably maybe connecting email addresses to people who have anonymous accounts that they don't necessarily want the government to know that's their account. Um, but it's important to remember that that request for information is it really shouldn't be viewed on its own. It's part of a coordinated campaign that's been going on for quite some time. That I would say that the public campaign began in about May of 2021 when the press secretary, the White House press secretary Jennifer Psaki, started making statements saying that you know these tech companies are responsible for American deaths because they're not censoring you know so-called mm -hmm. misinformation. Um, they need to be held accountable. And these are threats. Uh, and censorship of Twitter accounts ramped up at that around that time. Um, and all the plaintiff suspensions began started around that time, which I don't think is a coincidence. Um, so the argument is really that this is not private action, this is state action. And it's it's really important to note, I mean, people should be able to say whatever they want on social media, in my opinion, but the views that these people were voicing are not crazy. You know, they were like, mm -hmm. masks don't work. The flu is, is more deadly to children than COVID. Um, mm -hmm. Asymptomatic people don't transmit COVID that frequently. These are within the you know, realm of scientific debate if we don't have the answers already. And especially given that the government has been wrong so many times throughout this pandemic, mm -hmm. it's really sort of frightening that they think that they can position themselves on the as the sole authority on these subjects. Yeah, two two real, really important issues that I was, were raised sort of as I was reading about the case was that, you know, first it's what is what is HHS planning to do with this information? Um, you know, and, and the second is why this why now? 
it seems that if, you know, in some ways we're seeing conflicting information from the, the, the administration and from sort of the Democratic side where, where COVID is both over and yet we need to sue for these for this information. Um, you know, we know that midterms can affect policy and that always happens. Uh, you know, that's, you know, there's always a sort of, and that's, that's a nonpartisan issue that happens with every administration. Uh, but it seems that, you know, as there has been number of polling, uh, internal polling in the Democratic side, uh, a lot of focus groups done in sort of public pollsters, et cetera, et cetera, that said that people are, are kind of over COVID in a way, that yeah. that there seems to be some ratcheting back of some of these uh, restrictions that we discussed before. Uh, but yet we, we have March 3rd, which is well after this ball had already been rolling, we have this request for information, which in, in many ways to me seems very chilling. Yeah, it is chilling. And that's actually part of the argument we're making um, is that so the government has argued in opposition that, you know, we can't show that these people's were accounts were suspended because of the government. Twitter did censor users prior to, to government involvement. We're arguing that, OK, even if we can't show necessarily that these specific people were censored, the, the atmosphere of coercion um, and censorship has created a chilling effect. So people are afraid to say what they think. And all of the plaintiffs have attested to that. And they uh, Mr. Changizi in particular had even tweeted last summer before I, you know, I be, we had any idea about bringing case or thought of this, that he was afraid to say things because of the government, because he thought that the government was involved in censorship. So this is really exactly what the First Amendment was designed to protect against, is people being afraid to voice views that are dissent from government positions for fear of reprisal. That's why I think the suit is actually quite important. Now, wh one of the things that I think that is interesting is because uh, it, in many instances, uh, the threat of restrictions on social media comes in waves. It never seems to come, I mean, really. Uh, Democrats are very friendly with tech companies. It's, it's been very clear over the last five to 10 years that, you know, Silicon Valley's conservative roots have kind of moved away from there and, and they've allied themselves with sort of the California Democrats, you know, due to the location of these companies, plus other sort of, you know, reasons, whether that, you know, has to do with, you know, uh, uh, the ability to fund things or the ability to do things that, or et cetera, or, or just who's in power. Um, but I believe around that time, that was also the same time that there were some uh, bills that were being discussed about restricting the, the reach of uh, social media. And do you think that that uh, is, you know, part and parcel of the overall strategy? Yeah, I think it's, so they've threatened them with regulation. We actually have that in the case. Um, you know, they've made various statements saying that they should be held responsible, which presumably I think, means that they even think they could sue these companies for like the, the deaths of Americans who didn't get vaccinated or something like that, um, which is bizarre and probably wouldn't hold up in court. But the threats alone uh, are likely causing these companies to ramp up censorship. And um, both two of the plaintiffs, Kotzen and Sanger, were suspended within days of uh, the, the government's RFI um, being announced. And as we show, they were tweeting similar things for quite some time, you know, that they have dozens, if not hundreds of tweets saying basically the same thing, but they weren't getting suspended before the government became involved. Another aspect that I think that people who are maybe just hearing about this would really know is the, the actual breadth of the request. Um, it's a it's quite a long document, and there is a number of bullet points about what information they're requesting. And some of the, those were uh, audience reach, um, you know, sort of uh, Silicon Valley style metrics yeah. uh, that seemed quite specific and, and, and seemed that to be um, quite it's a quite uh, sophisticated request. 
in that they were asking for, for you know, a scope of reach, number of audience members, followers, etc., number of people who viewed each tweet, those types of things, or, you know, tweet or post, depending on Facebook or etc. Um, and it, I, I found that was quite interesting because it was so specific. And I, you know, knowing a little bit about social media at, from the back end, I thought that it wasn't entirely clear to me that they would have that information necessarily. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I'm not exactly, it's, it is a bit of a strange request in many ways. Um, they've obviously also, you know, they've framed the language of just the RFI, I think, to try to avoid liability in this context. So they make it sound, it's very tempered. But I'm arguing that in the context of all the other coercion, it really shouldn't be viewed in isolation. Um, this is sort of the, the, well, the current climax that could go even further, but um, the culmination of a campaign of intimidation to get these tech companies to do what the government wants. As, as, as you see that now, I, as a public defender, you've dealt with very practical matters where you have to, you know, you have to really argue within the scope of, of, of what's, what's at stake. You know, you need to make sure that you're, you're hitting all those certain points. Do you find yourself in a position where because of this, a lot of these issues are sort of behind the scenes and unknowable? in many ways because of the you know sort of the opaqueness of the administrative state do you find yourself in some ways like it's a little crazy making i imagine because you're arguing something that's very clear as you can see that this is kind of happening or at least it appears to be happening but it's not necessarily like you don't have all the the information available yeah no we don't um i've actually i did a foia request but these take a long time and they claim that they lost my foia request uh, <laughs> so I, I've asked for um, basically emails of a number of uh, individuals that work for the Surgeon General um, and various terms, you know, including our clients' names, um, you know, to see if we can come up with anything. But yes, I mean, it is. And the government does not want to give us inf any information. We ask for discovery. We have a hearing in the case uh, in Columbus, Ohio on Tuesday. Um, they've really resisted us every step of the way. We have a conference with the judge tomorrow. I'll see. Uh, I'll see what happens. But they're not being cooperative um, at all. <laughs> and now, just to get into the sort of nuts and bolts of, of the sort of suit. So, how many jurisdictions are you bringing this suit in, and how and why are those jurisdictions picked? Um, so we're br only bringing it in Ohio. Uh, that's okay. where Mark Changizi lives. Um, mm -hmm. The other two people live in San Francisco and Denver, uh, which might be less friendly. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think you want to be in the fourth district, though. But yeah, the, the yeah. Sixth Circuit um, yeah. has some good precedent on uh, on free speech. Actually, the Second Circuit does too. That's like the New York area. But yeah, we're mm -hmm. just bringing it in the one jurisdiction. Yeah, and do you? I mean, I, I can't. You can't speak to this, but do you? Do you? I, God, this is. I, I want to ask this question, but I don't want to make you put you in an awkward position. But have you heard from anyone on the tech side who is supportive of? And this is like your own business, but uh, who's supportive of this because they don't want to cooperate with this kind of uh, uh, request? No. Uh, so so far, I have not heard anything. We were sort of hoping somebody might come forward because I do think that we should be able to win with the information that we have. But it would certainly help if we had someone from the inside saying, you know we've been getting messages from the government saying you'd better do this or else. I mean, that would, you know, that would, then I don't think there would be any question. Um, the, this, there, there is, because of the um, evidentiary issue with causation, that's probably 
the biggest weakness we face. But again, I think that um, the chilling effect and various other, the timeline of events, I think establishes the First Amendment violation and others. We're, it's, we're not only raising a First Amendment claim, we have some other claims as well. But uh, it would help to have somebody on the inside attest that this is what's happening. So as, as you move forward with this suit, do you, do you feel that the, the public is informed enough about what's going on here? Or do you think that this is just a, a falling into the bin of all this sort of social media issues? You know, whether there's these, you know, the, President Trump was kicked off of Twitter. There's, you know, the Elon Musk, uh, you know, buy takeover sort of uh, 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 kerfuffle. Uh, all these issues are, are are important and, and you know and do have sort of societal impact but how do you make sure that this gets out there i, I guess being on this podcast is one, one good way yeah, but uh um, exactly. you know how, how what have you been doing to sort of engage the public on that you uh, op-eds etc exactly i just actually had an op-ed uh, published on brownstone today uh that i tweeted out i tweet um you know i go on various shows and try to talk about it um but i do think i do want people to know and i you know, it's my mother, who's sort of just a mainstream <laughs> Democrat, you know, I've sort of told her about it. And her immediate reaction is, oh, but they're private companies. They can do what they want, which also, <laughs> you know, it's, it's always kind of funny coming from people who have no libertarian views, but all of a sudden now they're big libertarians <laughs> and think private companies should do whatever they want. Yeah. Um, that's that's been the most interesting aspect of the Elon Musk discussion is that you know suddenly everybody uh, well, a, a month ago everybody was saying oh, they're private companies that could ban anyone and now they're saying well this is a public utility now yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I do think there are arguments to be made about that but my office only sues uh, the government we don't sue private companies so it wouldn't be within the scope of but I do think there are arguments to be made that the companies could be sued under the theory that they've become government actors essentially. So we're back, uh, back with me, James A. Smith and Michael Tracy. Uh, that was Janine Eunice. You can check out the whole interview uh, with her about her, her work more widely over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod. We'd love to have you in our podcast community. Uh, Michael, the last time we spoke was day two of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, viewers can go back and find that episode. Um, and we left off that conversation with the argument that like, this was not a failure of foresight on the part of anti-interventionists who doubted US intelligence primarily. This was, it's more important to recognize this as a failure of this foreign policy establishment. Putin is their guy. They put him in like countless authoritarian leaders of the 20th century. The West made him for short-term gain and reap the consequences later. We're all reaping it now. Ukraine is reaping those consequences uh, of NATO expansionism, US meddling in the region. Uh, of course, Russia's actions are indefensible and apparently pretty chaotic. But the pro-war lobby on the left and the right in the West uh, is asking Russia to tolerate what we ourselves would not tolerate. Uh, it's been pretty incredible to see how all this has taken shape since. Uh, we've seen wars before, but um, Michael Tracy, what would you say is distinctive about the way that this has been received, responded to, mediatized and moralized uh, in the last couple of months now? 
Yeah, I think it's just the total intractable consensus around a policy led by the quote unquote West, particularly the US and the UK, um, toward ever more escalation. Um, it's almost as though whether the US slash NATO slash the UK should interminably escalate the war, it's hardly as though that's even considered a debatable proposition. Like there's hardly any debate about whether that's a prudent policy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's almost sort of floats above the realm of debatable political questions, right? And that's when you know that you're you're you have a problem. That's yeah. when you know so, that there's a so let's, really let's be clear. Um, that's for, congealed. for viewers um, who are thinking, okay, yeah, we know the West has has has, uh, has brought us to this point, but at the end of the day. Uh, Russia has invaded Ukraine. This is a, a war of aggression uh, and uh, has, has turned a country upside down, created a, a whole kind of country of refugees. Surely the West needs to do something. What, what do you say to that kind of quite ordinary, apparently, opinion uh, right now? Um, well, Maybe you think the West needs to do something. Okay, well, I could just note that what they're doing is escalating the war every day, pretty much every day. That's the, the consequence of what they're mm-hmm. quote doing. So if that's what you, you but you believe means doing something, then okay, well at least acknowledge the consequences. Um, you know, there the the U.S. basically, and I think we might have talked about this when we first started, but the U.S. basically dropped any notion that they were going to be pursuing a diplomatic outcome. Um, or an outcome that maybe was not tied to total victory of uh, Ukraine over Russia. And that the logic of that keeps going further and further. I mean, it really started, uh, I don't know if it started, but it was most uh, uh, palpably articulated by Joe Biden mm-hmm. in the speech in Warsaw, end of March, where he's delivering this formal address it's not some off-the-cuff gab session. It's something that was meticulously prepared for him in a foreign capital, one of the f- defining moments of his entire presidency. At the climax of the speech, he th- declares that the policy of the U.S. is to impose regime change in Russia. And all this, and, and Biden was actually unusually lucid when he made that statement. Like it wasn't like he was stuttering or stammering, right? No, he was. You know, it was one of, the, one of the rare occasions where, you know, you could see the lights in his eyes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they immediately said, you know, the, the reporters immediately got the emails in their inbox saying, oh, no, this is um, this is not a change in policy. And then, you know, people said, OK, it was just a gaffe. Well, how is it a gaffe if it's the most kind of like intentionally choreographed, you know, uh, climax of a speech that anyone has ever seen. Uh, no, of course it wasn't a gaffe. It was just an articulation of what U.S. policy is plainly geared toward, which which is imposing regime change in Russia, ousting Putin. Okay, that's the aim. The aim is not cessation of hostilities. The aim is not bringing a stop to the war. It's to defeat Russia and yeah. basically overthrow the government eventually. And so that's what's that that's that's why that that's the overarching reason why you see every couple of days at most, you know, usually sometimes it's, it could be just every day. There's a new form of escalation that the U.S. introduces, and sometimes in tandem with the U.K. or even at times the U.K. leads the charge, right? Yeah. So, even in the past week, what have we seen? 
the Pentagon, the, the head of the Pentagon, the Secretary of Defense, and the Secretary of State go on uh, the secret tri trip to Kiev. They um, have a meeting that they barred journalists from covering. Um, so they had to stay behind, you know, haplessly in Poland. But the, the, the Secretary of Defense, Austin, and Blin uh, Secretary of State Blinken, they go to Kiev. They have some un unknown meeting with uh, Zelensky. And then what happens a couple hours later? Well, there's a mysterious explosion or series of explosions inside territorial Russia, 90 miles away from the Ukraine border, a military logistics hub and an oil depot. And um, apparently, you know, it, it's just a total coincidence that this happened right after the head of the Pentagon left the country. I mean, please. I mean, I, I, yeah. I can't prove that there's a causal connection there. But if that wasn't intentionally signifying something, then, you know, I don't know what we're dealing with here because it's just too many layers of interpretative analysis. Um, and then, you know, the, the following day uh, or the, maybe then two days later, the UK Armed Services Secretary, and I think, you know, this was it was pretty much in reaction to, so he, he was asked this in reaction to what the, what was relayed by the, by Austin, the, the head of the Pentagon, uh, was asked about um, U.S. or U.K. or NATO provided weapons being used for us offensive combat operations in, in Russia, not in Ukraine, not for defensive purposes in Ukraine, inside Russia. And he said that's entirely legitimate. Yeah. So they're now saying, and, and it just, and then two weeks ago, there were leaks that were coming out and, you know, politicians were also making statements to this effect that, you know, formally erased any remaining distinction, which never really existed. But now they don't even claim that it exists. This this supposed distinction between defensive combat operations and offensive combat operations or defensive weapons and offensive weapons. Right now, the U.S. US says doesn't care anymore about that distinction. They leaked that to The Wall Street Journal. And they're fine if their real-time intelligence that they're providing to the Ukraine military is used for offensive purposes in Russia. Um, and then you have that mysterious explosion a few days ago. And uh, yeah, and then we all of a sudden, then yesterday, you know, it's $33 billion in more aid to Ukraine that's being proposed by Biden to Congress. And that number will probably go up once Congress gets done with it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's never anything to do with pursuing a ceasefire or pursuing some sort of diplomatic accord that comes out of the U.S. or the U.K. They're saying, no, no, this is a, basically a fight to the death. And uh, so everything they do is an escalation toward that end. It's easy to see Biden as a kind of um, Eisenhower-like figure, uh, th this kind of um, de decrepit, ill guy surrounded by Dr. Strangelove uh, like deep state operatives who uh, are, are trying to kind of, um, you know, push forward uh, the, these military engagements, even as his initial reaction seems to be quite conservative. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of like last year with Afghanistan, um, Biden holds to Trump's proposal of withdrawal. Uh, and initially, you know, it, it's almost like being a guy who is so ancient he doesn't quite know where he is. That's almost an advantage when he's being barraged by the press pack demanding, um, you know, more blood in Afghanistan, etc. And then a few weeks later, we have the most sadistic and appalling sanctions imposed and we have um, a, a kind of, um, you know, war by uh, other means going on. There's a similar sort of pattern here. Initially, it seemed like 
uh, Joe Biden, Boris Johnson were the, mu the much more dovish figures in the face of a media that wanted all-out uh, nuclear war. And then gradually that sort of wears away and um, we see them get their way and the kind of escalation creeps in. W would you agree with that pattern or is there something kind of peculiar about the, the way in which actually it seems like the commentator class are in cahoots with the deep state here and and, and the our actual leaders seem a little bit kind of like clueless and being kind of blown around in the wind on this thing. Yeah, I think I think your the pattern you laid out is pretty much accurate. You know, Biden when he appeared at this quote unquote extraordinary NATO summit in Brussels in March uh, was asked questions at a press conference. Actually, I tried to get into this summit and was barred by the Belgian Ministry of Defense, which <laughs> frankly I don't think is a thing that even needs to exist. Um, but uh, Biden uh, was asked by one of the intrepid American journalists who was was permitted entry. Um, one of the you know, the big adversarial questions that she posed to him, I think she was from ABC News, was, were you too quick to rule out World War III? Like, mm. as though he is derelict because he was too quick to say that you know, he probably was not inclined to start World War III. Um, so because Biden has, you know, rhetorically at least indicated that he's against whatever he thinks World War III means, Anything short of that, in terms of escalation, is not seen as, I guess, that big of a deal. Um, so as long as we're not incinerated in a nuclear explosion, uh, anything Biden does you know, <laughs> on the road to that is seen as, like, sensible, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, but once we're incinerated, like, there's not going to be any point in... Uh, retroactively kind of analyzing what went wrong to uh, create that situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, it's funny. You mentioned Afghanistan. Go back and look what, what I wrote about at the time and said about the time. I actually, you know, to say I praise Biden is not like how I would put it exactly, but I was defending him against a lot of the yeah. hysterical media histrionics uh, that where people were had an, actually the, the, the magnitude of that meltdown was, Fairly shocking, because uh, there had been a a long-standing consensus in the U.S. cross-partisan, as you mentioned, also <laughs> expressed by Trump, that the war in Afghanistan was a failure, a need to end, and uh, it was a waste of resources, waste of uh, U.S. military's li uh, lives, and so on. Biden then ends it, and it's supposedly the the biggest calamity of his entire presidency according to the media they turn on him on a dime I and mean, whereas they're always they had always been fairly soft on biden and uh, accommodating of him and even grateful toward him because he beat trump uh that was the one issue on which they were just utterly vicious toward him and his uh polling numbers actually dipped irretrievably um so he he lost a lot of goodwill in the public because of you know, seemingly because of the afghanistan withdrawal issue. And then, so, so that was when he takes the more like relatively dovish, I guess you would say stand. Right. And then fast forward a few months later, as you <laughs> indicated, he takes a stand where he's presiding over the, the, this entrenchment of a limitless ever escalating proxy war. And he's praised to the hilt as uh, this paragon of enlightened American virtue or and democracy promotion or whatever. 
Um, he, he actually uses it's interesting. He actually uses the rhetoric of democracy democracy promotion that is reminiscent of what George W. Bush used in uh, to justify the Iraq War. It's it's yeah. very very similar yeah. rhetoric. Um, not a sim not there's no but there's not pr been a preemptive invasion yet, which Biden actually also supported back in 03. Um, but still, I mean the the whole logic behind it is very much similar. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I guess I mean, what I, I guess what kind of freaks me out is that you go back to the Iraq War, and there's so many examples of like journalists who look back at that time and say, "I was I was duped, I was duped. Uh, uh, I, they showed me this intelligence, they they assured me, etc." I mean, look at the the Observer, you know, the Sunday edition, the Sunday version of the Guardian in the UK. So a nominally left paper, you know, that was more true back back in, back at the time. They were one of the kind of front runners for justifying uh, the invasion of Iraq. But the kind of direction of influence or the direction of travel was this was the state using the media. It feels like it's the other way around now that we've yeah. almost got this kind of radicalized um, elite tranche and they are in revolt um, even against um, our leaders. It, yeah, I mean, it's a, Christopher Lash calls a revolt of the elites. It, it, what's, what's changed? Are, are these people looking for moral clarity after all this kind of um, confusion of, these, of this sort of populist decade? What, what, what has changed? Why is, why is that switched around? I think there is something to that, although I would add that, at least in the case of the U.S., it may be slightly different in the U.K., but in the case mm. of the U.S., you know, when Biden was first elected in 2020, there was a Financial Times article which quoted some anonymous European diplomatic official as note as observing that the foreign policy team being brought in by Biden to the White House has this emotional, visceral loathing for Russia. Yeah. Um, so there is a faction of the actual establishment, meaning the people who now wield the levers of state in the U.S. who had been radicalized against Russia in the more liberal wing of the, of the establishment, particularly since 2016, given that all, all that transpired with Putin supposedly installing Trump as a stooge and as a Manchurian candidate or whatever. Yeah. Um, and this whole kind of overarching narrative that they constructed about how Putin is this progenitor of global right-wing extremism and he's you know funneling trump and he's funding trump and le pen and brexit and everything else you know um it's terrifying actually to think you know that they and, believe and macron it. just resurrected that against uh le pen just this week yeah yeah i was, yeah, yeah. I, was in, I was i was in paris and i mean yeah, you could just about sort of for, uh, forgive or understand when it's being used as a cynical weapon against right-wing adversaries or or when it's being used as a kind of way of reassuring the democrat base like oh hillary didn't really lose uh yeah. it was just russia but the idea that these freaks believe it and want to no. like act on it that is terrifying no i mean having covered the <laughs> having covered the gory details of russiagate Mm -hmm. For all that time, including having gone to, you know, when F Trump was first elected, there was this wave or when he first was in, came into office, rather, there was this wave of uh, protests that engulfed uh, town hall meetings. So members of Congress would hold town hall meetings periodically in their district around the country. And uh, these newly formed like quasi grassroots activist groups like Indivisible. Um, 
had formed, you know, as a, you know, to show that they were indivisibly united against the Trump agenda or whatever, they would dispatch uh, their, you know, base or whatever to these rallies. And I was in California at the time and I would go all around California and I would actually tabulate the number of questions posed to say a uh, Republican member of Congress who was conducting the town hall. And I remember I was in Northern California. This was probably in March of 2017. And I'm pretty sure the Congressman was Tom McClintock. It was kind of like a fairly standard board affair, you know, uh, moderate ish Republican, uh, you know, one of the few remaining in California, but he was inundated with questions uh, from these uh, extremely exercised and uh, furious and just angry and confused activists. And the majority of the questions that he was asked, and this was supposed to be about, about largely about healthcare, right? Mm. Because there was a, you know, there was a pending potential repeal of Obamacare. Um, the majority of the questions that he was asked were about Russia and about what must be done to stop Russia from subverting the American political system. Um, and you would have the people walking around with placards kind of transposing Trump and Putin, and they would even have Soviet iconography and stuff. And they were, they believed it. I mean, so it's easy to laugh this stuff off if you're just kind of sitting on on the internet and you're just seeing the most comical manifestations of it and you never actually interact with people who hold these views but no i assure you they believed it i assure you a lot of democrats who elected officials believe it and i think to a large extent joe biden believes it joe biden actually said during the primary campaign in 2020 that um he believes that trump was he agreed with someone who said that trump had been kind of nefariously installed into office by putin um, so yeah, I mean, I think that is going to radicalize and energize the, de the, the liberal wing of the national security establishment into a far more aggressive posture toward Russia. I mean, Trump, I mean, uh, Biden campaigned on, um, taking a harder line against Russia or confronting Russia in 2020. He thought he thinks that was his mandate when he won and he's carrying it out. So yeah, I mean, I think, um, they do genuinely believe it, but I think you're also right that there is this dynamic where the most hardline, the most kind of out there demands for escalation seem to be emanating from like the ground up, right? Because it's in part because the Ukraine lobby is very effective in tugging at heartstrings, yep. right? In uh, ramping up the emotional potency of their appeals and um, making it seem as though their struggle is just next in a lot in line with all these American struggles that preceded it. Like, um, and even Zelensky mentioned said, invoked Martin Luther King yeah. in his speech to Congress. It's, so, it's, yeah, it's been an incredible of synthesis of, um, of, of social justice dynamics over the past few years. I want to ask Michael Tracy about that. I want to ask about your encounter with some of the, uh, weirdos of Britain that you've been uh, dealing with while you've been here. We've got to say goodbye to the YouTube audience. Thanks for watching. Like and subscribe, Sublation Media. If you want to carry on hearing my conversation with Michael Tracy, as well as the full version of the conversation with Janine Yunus, get over to patreon.com forward slash the popular pod and uh, check out the audio there. But for now, see you next week.